This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. All next week on the Bartholomew Town Podcast, a special report on Rhode Island's housing crisis. I'll speak with advocates, journalists, realtors, politicians, and others as we examine this crisis through conversation. Subscribe wherever you like to get podcasts or visit ripodcast.com. The legalization of recreational cannabis that went into effect last year can open doors for your career. If you are already in the industry or wondering what is the best path to break into the cannabis field, well, the University of Rhode Island has a program to help you become highly competitive in numerous areas of the cannabis industry. Fully accredited by URI's College of Pharmacy, the certificate program is 100% online, and it can be completed in two semesters. The next application deadline for the summer 2023 session is April 4th, and courses start on May 9th. You can learn more at uri.edu slash online slash cannabis, or give them a call at 401-874-5280. All right, Speaker Shikarchi, as always, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. And here we are now just a few days past the State of the Union, a day past the initial revelation, if you will, of the proposed budget. And, you know, there's a lot in there. I mean, there's been a lot made that, oh, wow, the budget's more than it was last year. I mean, that is what it is. That's a matter of surplus and and somewhat inside baseball. But your initial impression of the state of the, the state of the state, I should say, and then also you know, the, the proposed budget that the McKee administration has laid out. So it's it's typical, very similar to last year's budget. The governor has prioritized some, uh, you know, what I would say key components for him, which is tax relief. Uh, uh, um, so we'll, we will do what we always do, which is a deep dive into the details of it. We'll make sure that the public has ample opportunity. It'll be fully vetted live on TV. Every single article will be, as you know, the process will call the department directors in to explain why they need this allocation and what the benefits are, what the costs are, and why we should do it or shouldn't do it. And it'll be explained through the House Finance Committee and the public will participate through that process. So um, I, I think the budget touched on the highlights the governor had been talking about in his campaign. To be honest with you, there were no surprises for me. I don't think there were any surprises for you in the media as well or in the public who, who followed this stuff. Now, you raised a point in the beginning, you said it was inside baseball, but people say, oh, why is the budget so much? Well, what people don't realize is that every time we have extra unemployment benefit uh, that goes to workers who were out because of COVID last year, and people shouldn't forget that last January, February, and March, we had another outbreak of COVID. All of that money passes through the budget. The When the federal government extends unemployment or enhances unemployment, they don't give it to the individual, the average around, they give it to the Department of uh, labor and training, and they in turn give it to people. So all of that money filters through the state budget. And it's good that it does that because we have a check and balance on it. The same thing with the CARES Act money and the opera money, all of that gets filtered through a process, a public process gets vetted on and legislators vote on it so that no one person gets to decide where it all goes in, in the dock of night. So I'm happy, very happy with the process. But because of that process, when the federal government gives money, basically because of COVID, that's what you see all this federal money for, it flows through the budgets of of each respective state. And that's why the budget process has been higher than, um, you know, normal, I would say, or higher than usual, because we're including an allocation for all the federal aid. I hope that explains something to your listeners. Yeah, I think it does. And it it kind of clarifies the 
micro controversies surrounding this. I mean, I think it's something that no one will remember next Tuesday in reality, but um, the, the, or, the, or, or next week, next month, it, next day, whatever. Exactly. It's, it's, it is what it is. You know, one thing that got a rousing ovation was the governor's call for a ban on assault style weapons. And this was initially proposed last year, really it's in the been, wake of, it's been of proposed every year. This is not new this year. Last year. This is a perennial issue. It's 10, 12 years that I've been in general assembly. It's been there every single year. What do you think it is that has prevented that from going through? Is it political will? Is it just a constitutionality and concerns about getting gummed up oh, in court? I, I think that those are those are good questions. I think both. I think also what you know, I'm not a gun person. I don't own a gun, so I don't really know about it. But as explained to me primarily by the attorney general, state police, and people that I respect who know a lot more about guns than I do, is that the mo- more important thing is what we did last year, which was the magazine ban. You effectively have neutered the assault rifle. What people don't understand, a magazine ban basically makes an assault rifle no no longer an assault rifle. So you've already taken care of that issue. That's issue number one. We've did it. And it, and it was not easy. And it did require a lot of political will, but we got it done that year in my first term as speaker. And I'm proud of that. We did two other very important gun bills as well. And, you know, actually, we've done gun bills a long time, but people seem to forget the red flag bill, the ghost gun bill. Uh, uh, we did bills, manufacturing gun bills. We, we did straw purchase of gun bills. We've, we've done... Uh, raising the age from 18 to 21 to buy a gun. I mean, we've did a lot of gun bills. and But for some reason, you say assault rifle, they think we've already addressed the issue. But I would point out that th- these are very complicated issues constitutionally. The people who own guns are very, very passionate about their guns. And these are all being challenged right now in the First Circuit Court of Appeals. So, you know, we, the fact that we've done so many of them, we've addressed this, I'd like to just see where the court lands on this. So far, the first initial phase in the district court, they ruled the state was constitutional. But th- there are gun laws being decided throughout the f- circuit courts and the Supreme Court every day in the, throughout the country. And we need to be cognizant of that before we act. Mm-hmm. One, one thing that is that, that comes up with the, the 6.85% sales tax or the, the reduction to 6.85% is number one, people say, eh, what is that going to do? I think it was Channel 12 said it's going to save the average person $77 a year. So the question becomes from conservatives, why not lower it to a 5% in terms of raising a, a competitive um, you know, versus Massachusetts type of standard? And also then some across the spectrum have asked, why not just a rebate? akin to what's happening in Massachusetts and plenty of other states as well is 6.85%, you know, as a sales tax, is that a real win for the state of Rhode Island in your mind? Well, I I will defer to, uh, you know, the governor who proposed that to explain it, but I will just tell you, you know, why not 5% very simply because of the cost, you know, the the cost for the 0.15 reduction is about $33.6 million. So if you're talking a full 1% reduction, you're talking 150 plus million dollars to be cut out of the budget annually every year. So when people say that to me, I like to say to them in a very nice and respectful way, tell me what programs do you want to cut to pay for that loss of reduction? Are we cutting out aid to homeless? Are we cutting out city and town aid? What programs do you want to cut to reduce the sales tax? And, and, and with respectfully, I say this, when people make comparisons with the highest or the lowest sales tax, I don't, I need to know, or I need to see or be told 
that those comparisons are apples to apples and oranges to oranges because in Rhode Island, we exempt, you know, you can have a low sales tax in some states, but they tax clothes and they tax food and they tax medicine. And in Rhode Island, we don't tax food and we don't tax clothes and we don't tax medicine. So you need to have a real true comparison. So in terms of how much you save, how much it costs and where you're getting the revenue. Look, last year, uh, Bill, we cut taxes in Rhode Island. We cut them strategically across the board to help as many Rhode Islanders as possible who needed it the most. We, If you were a family, you had children under 18, you got a tax credit of $250 per child up to three children. If you were retired and not working, we raised your exemption on Social Security so you got more money in your pocket and less money to the state of Rhode Island. If you were in the military and, and retired and you served our country, you got uh, all of your... Um, taxes waived permanently from the state. Not to mention for small businesses, we gave $100 million into the unemployment trust fund so their rates wouldn't raise due to COVID and fraud and, and that fund got hit pretty hard because everyone was out of work because of COVID. So we made we had the money last year and we made the reductions and, and we met the needs of the community in the budget, this past budget that we're operating on right now, we passed July 1st. So in terms of going forward, I'm all about tax cuts. I'd love to cut taxes, but I I got to find out where the revenue's coming from, how much is these these revenue you know these taxes are going to cost us, and that leads me to a point that I really want to emphasize. I want to take a moment of your show to do this, my little soapbox. Many people in the media, including some of the commentators and on your station and the news people throughout the media, like to say we have a surplus of six hundred and ten million dollars. Well, where I went to school, and it's not Harvard or Yale, but a surplus means you closed your books and you took in more money than you spent, and that's a surplus. We are 90 days into our fiscal year, and they're looking at numbers the first week of November, and they're projecting out a surplus to be closed at the end of the fiscal year in June. Well, guess what? We have, the state has our expenses just like everybody else. We have our expenses for energy, for cost. A lot of projects have gone way over budget. And the reality here, here in, in Rhode Island is we, as a state, we have to be careful and cognizant. We are running about 5% as of November 1st, more revenue than we're spending. That's a good thing. And I'm happy. And I hope we do it again. I hope we continue to do that more. But that's 5%. And talk to me where we are in middle of May, when we're very close, 90 days or 45 days for the end of the fiscal year. And then we'll talk about a surplus. I went to New York recently for a legislative conference last month of December. I met with two world-class economists, one from JP Morgan's, one from the Blackstone Group, separate apart, different days, different locations. They both said almost the exact same thing is that we are headed to a very strong recession and it's gonna affect your budgets. He was talking to other speakers and, and uh, uh, Senate presidents throughout the country. You're gonna feel this, you're gonna see this in your budget. Your revenues are gonna go down. So everyone's talking about a surplus and tax cut and how much. We may not have any revenue. I just don't know. I'm not a forecaster. I don't forecast the economy. What I know is that we have to be cautious about it because I don't want to cut programs. We just simply don't know. I can tell you that this morning, Google just cut 12,500 people. Facebook, 10,000 people. The high-tech companies who have huge employment workforces, Amazon, another 10,000 people. Right then and there, I just talked about three companies with 50,000 employees or 40,000 employees out of work. So all of these things are going to have an effect on the economy. And when they're out of work, they're not 
uh, paying uh, uh, taxes. They're not making money. So we have to be very careful before everyone's talking about like we have a surplus. Even if it's, we have a surplus, it's a one-time surplus. So we have to be very careful of this. And when you cut the sales tax, you're not just cutting it for this year, for 2023. We are cutting it permanently, or at least hopefully permanently. Look what happened for, for many, many years with the car tax. The car tax was uh, initiated with Speaker Howard, and I don't remember, maybe Governor Ahmed, to get rid of the car tax. And then the economy came and went really bad back down in like 2008, and the car taxes came back up, and they passed it onto the cities and towns, and everybody raised the revenue, and people were upset. We were on a path to get rid of it. Well, we have gotten rid of it permanently. And as long as I'm Speaker, there will not be a car tax, period, the end. And we did it a year earlier than forecast. Why? Because we had the money. I'm all about tax cuts and giving money back to the residents of Rhode Island when we have it, when it's available. But I don't like to make promises of giving out money or giving back money until I know we actually have it and we can afford it. On housing, you were critical of Josh Saul in the in the media, at least in terms of just not making the, yeah, the getting not, the ball forward the way yeah, that necessarily. Not, you I was I was critical of two areas and they were not personal because I happen to like the gentleman. I think he's a good guy and I think he's a, a smart policy guy. I'm not sure he had the skill set to be, to be the one to effectuate the policy, but he was smart and he was a nice guy and I'm polite and respectful. I don't have anything critical to say about him personally. I will criticize A, in the fact that it's about production and we didn't really see a lot of production. And the other part is that I, I found out since his departure, um, he did do a lot of good things, but he very, was very poor communicator. And in that job, you have to communicate what you're doing. People want to see action across the spectrum. We made a substantial allocation, $250 million in last year's budget, and we created a permanent revenue stream. And then we had bond money. I can go on and on about what people want to know where the money's going and where, how's it being spent. And Josh was not good at that. And he was you know, not good at delivering production. I'm hopeful uh, and reasonably confident that Stefan Pryor possesses that skill set. And let's hope he can take that, that he's proven to do on some of the bigger projects and take it because it is not an easy job. It is not a one person job. I have been supportive. I know the governor has been supportive, the Senate president. He's got the support of the uh, state leaders. Whoever is in that role and happens to be Stefan Pryor has got to deliver. Mm -hmm. Do you do you have a sense of when you look at the housing crisis right now, which is very real, there's really no disputing it. It's it's so multifaceted. It's the real estate industry. It's short-term rentals. It's policymakers. It's municipalities. It's the it's banking sector. It's mm -hmm. homelessness uh, for sure. What is, even outside of the confines of the budget or anything in terms of explicit policy, what do you think needs to happen? Very simple. It's not, it's not hard. It's not rocket science what has to be done. It's very difficult to get it done, and I will acknowledge that. But the, the solution is very simple. And, and, and this was, has always been my belief in my 30 years as being someone who's a land use lawyer and a real estate lawyer and was kind of bore out in an uh, article in the Atlantic magazine in December. It's a supply issue, a supply and demand. We have a very strong demand. Uh, people want uh, to live the American dream, have a home, a second home, a third home, and then supply. And we simply do not have enough supply. And that's what it really boils down to. Across the whole spectrum of housing, we need more. We need more at the high end. That's what people ask me, what do you think of the, the Fane Tower? I, like, I'm, I'm hoping it gets built because there's going to be 500 units of housing there. 
We need more in the workforce development. We need more market rate housing, workforce housing. Workforce housing is like policeman salary, fireman salary, teacher salary. That's workforce housing. Then we need some uh, moderate housing, affordable housing, and low-income housing. And low-income housing to me is uh, the housing authorities in Rhode Island. We have 30 of them. I think they're underutilized. I think they do great work. And I think they have an opportunity to expand. And the nice thing about housing authority money is the housing authority money, people, they can do construction and it's uh, tax free. What's so, your message to the municipalities just using the bully pulpit that yeah. in terms well, of zoning? I, I spoke at the League of Cities and Towns last night and I've been speaking to them and meeting with them, meeting with their lobbyists, meeting with their president, that we need them to step up to the plate be part of the solution and help us find ways to create more housing. Now, some of them may not like that. Some of them may not want to do that, but well, we have to think of the common good and the greater good here. And we need to move the needle on, on housing. And it's not what I wish, no matter how difficult it was or is, Bill, I wish there was one single bill that could handle the whole thing and just do it, pass it. And however hot it was, and we twisted the arms, we passed it, we got it done and it would be over, but it's not. It's going to be, we've gotten this problem ourselves over the last 30 years or so. We're going to have another 30 years to get out of it. We can move the ball down the road. I've met with housing people from Massachusetts to New York, all over the, the country, and talked to them and go to conferences. I was one in, I was in, in Orlando last week with the Housing Authority, FADA, Public Housing Authorities, Directors Association. It's very simple uh, problem to identify and, and, and it's just supply. We need to have more housing. We have to make it easier to build so the private sector builds. Maybe the public sector looks at building some. Maybe we, we have a commission chaired by Representative Norray. Do we look at taking some state-owned land, that surplus land that's nothing's going on, and do we build housing there? Do we take some land that we got from around the airport that we're not using for the expansion? Do we take some land around the prison? Do we take some land around Zamborano? Some of the dorm rooms at Rhode Island College? We need to look creatively differently outside the box. What are other states doing? There are 49 other communities facing the same problem. So what, let's look at them. California, I'm not proposing this. It's very drastic, but California just got rid of all parking requirements and uh, basically uh, all zoning boards, all boards. You just go in, you get a building permit, and you go on. So very little public input. So everyone's looking at this thing a little bit differently. We have to keep all our options open. We have to listen. We have two great commissions, one chaired by Tom Deller. He's the Johnstontown in Central Falls planner. He wears two hats. He's chairing that one. June Speakman, who's a professor at Roger Williams University, chairs the other one, Low and Moderate Housing. And I'm expecting good legislation to come out of that. You know, there's a lot of things we can do. They're all small and incremental, but you put them to together collectively. We're moving the needle and then we'll continue to build more. And building more requires us to look at a lot of different angles to attack this problem because there's no one size fits all solution. And we're just going to continue to make it a priority to come on your show and other shows and talk about it, to pass legislation that does it and work with my partners in government, the Senate and the, and the governor to move the needle forward. Last question, just quickly, the working group aspect of this uh, General Assembly, this this House, do you feel like it, things are going to get done? Do, do you have enough camaraderie and, you know, not only between the parties, but within the parties where, you know, you've got some people who would say they're almost far left and you've got other people who are more moderate conservative. Do you think everyone can work together to pass meaningful legislation? And do you, is that your instinct? 
Well, I will tell you that I never like to predict the future, but if you want to predict the future, I look at the past and the last two years were the most productive. The, the makeup of the General Assembly philosophically did not change Democrat, Republican, progressive, conservative, moderate, did not change from the first my first year, uh, term as speaker to this term. And we did a, a lot of phenomenal work on the environment front, on the housing front, on the fiscal front, the economic. We did a lot of good work in the last two years. I'm, I am expecting, I said it in my inauguration speech uh, when the, I was elected by the House, uh, two more years to continue. Mm -hmm. Speakers so I, are yeah, the answer, your short answer is yes. I do feel we can work together. I do think we'll get something done. And it's just not my belief. It's based on my experience as a speaker the previous two years. Speaker Shikarchi, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for your time and enjoy the session. Over? Wow, that went by fast. The fastest does, 20 minutes in Rhode Island. And if it's if it's any consolation, I give you the vote. You do look better without the beard. Hey, mm -hmm. thanks so much. I appreciate it. You know, and you look younger too. You look younger. Look at this. Mm -hmm. That's the secret. I got to get the eye creams going now. That's the next. I went step. to. I went this morning to the. Uh, uh, assisted Living Association. I spoke and Sabina Matos was there and she says, we have to help all of the people who take care of the old people because we're all going to be there. And I said, Sabina, welcome. She got elected. Uh, she'll be in the state house now on her own. I said, the state house will age you faster. <laughs> and and uh, the whole room broke up with laughter, but it's true. I feel like I've, I've only been speaker for two years. Sometimes it feels like a lifetime. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I would say talk radio has a similar effect as well, based on my uh, experience over there. So I don't doubt it. Hey, next week on the podcast, a week-long special report on Rhode Island's housing crisis. If you have a question for any of our panelists or just want to share a thought with me, send me an email, bill at ripodcast.com. At HealthSource RI for Employers, we provide access to health insurance to more than 1,100 local businesses and nonprofits, and 96% of them renew through us every year. Maybe it's our choice of 19 different health plans, our 10 years of customizing solutions, or our one local team of dedicated experts helping employers find quality health insurance. See how our numbers stack up for you. Learn more at healthsourceri.com slash employers.